Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. And I have a, a very pleasant surprise today. One of the three women is back to join us today. It's Deborah Adams, who has become an expert in the field of domestic violence. And uh, she, uh, her, what, what's your motto, Deborah? I've lived it. I have lived it. I've studied it, and I've worked it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and she, working it indeed she is. Um, she has been involved in several publications. She's done several studies for in the field, and she's here today to talk about books because she is in three books. And uh, Deborah, tell us a little bit about your uh, background and how you ended up contributing to three different books. Well, it's all in who you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> You have to know people. <laughs> you have to know people, but it just—it turned out that writing became an interest uh, to me later in life, and I was doing my academic piece where I was studying about domestic violence and all forms of violence and oppression, and I was in a program where, well, you and I have known each other for years, and yeah, so we have. We have. You You brought up a project that you had dreamed of, and you decided to initiate it. So um, I was, uh, you know, honored to be part of your anthology and uh, loved the topic, of course. Yes. Okay. And, of course, that book is three, uh, um, Why Doesn't She Just Leave? Real Women, Real Stories, available on Amazon. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's a great, great book, and one of the things that I love about it, Heather, was I always tell everybody it was like almost 100% survivors, self-identified survivors of violence who participated in that book on all levels, and mm-hmm. that's kind of unique in our uh, in our world, isn't it, that that many survivors would come together to produce such a beautiful product. Yeah, I think it is because we still have that that um, hint of shame about talking about our experiences. Absolutely, I, you and I have kind of overcome that. <laughs> Absolutely, we know, we know when we know when we need to use our voice now, and that's that's important because there are so many survivors, self-identified survivors, that maybe aren't participating in a criminal case or a court system or a family justice system of any kind that think that isn't really me that isn't who I am I'm I'm not a survivor and I don't I don't identify that way and it turns out I didn't identify that way early on in in my uh well in my marriage my 17 year marriage to an abusive husband I didn't identify that way at all uh, I didn't either. It's it's really a process. I actually had a police officer tell me that it was abusive. And yeah. that kind of opens your eyes. <laughs> it, it does when someone else validates your experience. It, it definitely opens your eyes and says, maybe I'm not crazy, right? <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. okay. This kind of validates what I've been feeling here. Exactly. So as I went through my um, my past 20 years, working history has been in nonprofit, domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual violence, agency work, and I have really literally worked, met with, and worked with, you know, thousands of survivors. Have you ever thought of it in those terms, Heather? No. No, actually, I haven't. Um, yeah. Someone was talking to me about, you know, what my experience level was, and I said, well, it's been about 20 years, and if I stop to think about how many people I have connected with and ta- worked with and talked to on this subject, it's it's an immense number. It's it's you know, kind of like mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, level. exactly. Well, and when you stop and think that the people that we have directly influenced also go out and influence people, um, yes. that's pretty impressive, I think. 
I do too. And I think that's the value that uh, you and I have learned that when it's appropriate, we will talk about our personal experience. But now we also, both you and I, have the academic credentials as well as the, the actual work experience. And I kind of exactly. call that an interdisciplinary point of view. Uh, you know, it's three-dimensional, right? It's not just yeah. I didn't learn only from a book. I've experienced it, and I've worked with other people who have experienced it. So it's pretty powerful yeah. for me. To well, and it gives you a very broad basis, you know, for, for yeah. uh helping. Deborah, I want to jump in and give our phone number. Um, if you have an okay. experience you'd like to share or a book you'd like to share, give us a call. Uh, the number for call-in is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. So, Deborah, tell me about a couple of other books that you've been in. Well, I feel really honored to be part of those, and they're really both anthologies, and I, the, it, we're calling it the Missing Piece series. And it is a collection of authors. So far, we've all been women, but we're not, it's not intentionally exclusive to women. But we are talking about the missing pieces. And our first book was called The Missing Piece, A Transformational Journey, and each of us were uh, requested to write a chapter about overcoming some trauma or violence or grief, loss, medical trauma, any kind of, of change, transition in our life where we felt overwhelmed and then have worked through it and come out the other side. And so in the... Missing Piece, A Transformational Journey, which was uh, launched to the public in December of 2013. There was 27 women authors who wrote chapters, and it was really a heart and soul project. It really came from a place of we have been through this, and we wanted to put it in writing and offer it to others who may be going through something similar to give hope. To, to shine yeah. some light on, on how you can go from A to B with some bad stuff happening in between. So the name of my chapter was called The Five A's to Authenticity. Hmm. And that was what really... What are the five A's? Uh, the five A's are you first must be aware. You uh-huh. must acknowledge... You, you need to be aware of what you're experiencing. You need to acknowledge that it did happen to you. And what I mean for that is you can't bury your head in the sand anymore. And yeah. then you have to accept that it happened to you because those are all kind of different levels for me. There was different experiences in going through those processes. And after you accept it, you want to adjust or adapt. You need to adapt whatever your thinking is and those steps will lead you to authenticity. And for me, authenticity is living my life as I am and being proud of that and able to express that and to live in my own truth without fear of judgment from others. So that those steps are just, it is a process that we go through. So I wrote about that, and I was also able to... Um, at the end, we were asked if we could share some resources or some tips that helped us through those times. So my chapter also includes a few self-exercises that you can, uh, you know, do on your own. Nobody's checking it. <laughs> it's for your own uh, enlightenment. Yeah. So, um, so that was what my book, my chapter in The Transformational Journey was about. Oh, it sounds absolutely useful. Um, for anybody who's trying, it, one of the things, and maybe you don't agree with this, Deborah, but one of the things that I feel happens when a woman gets out of an abusive relationship, or even when she's still in an abusive relationship, it's a, a, an awareness that starts to take place. Um, mm-hmm. You start thinking, wait a minute, this wasn't right. Wait a minute, this was, you know, you go through self-blame and all that other stuff, but then gradually you start learning and recognizing what you've been through. And that's when I think the growth really takes place. 
Oh, absolutely. I do agree with you, Heather. And I think that we don't, when we're in the middle of an abusive relationship or in the middle of a grief period of our life, we don't actually have time to focus on what we're thinking and what we're feeling so much because we're dealing with the day-to-day. We're dealing with the crisis in front of us. Yeah, And absolutely. so it's when that sort of subsides or when we are on the, the downside of, of that period in our life that we finally discover there's time, oh, I can think beyond how to manage the crisis. What's that like? You know, and who am I without that crisis now? Because maybe that crisis has been part of your life for a long time. As in my case, it was 17 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, it's amazing how, how uh, consistently some of us tried to make it work, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kept thinking, you know, this will work or this is my fault, and certainly he's there telling you it's your fault. And uh, we just keep keep plugging away until there's absolutely no hope, uh, and we realize we that there's do, no hope. We do, and don't you, don't you think that's human nature? And it's also got a lot to do, I believe, with our social and cultural uh, norms. You know, it's oh, our absolutely. society just says we need to be in a in a two two person relationship. And, you know, recently we've seen a lot of a shift in how that looks because, it, I mean, it's still very predominantly female-male, but there is becoming more acceptance for all types of relationships and families. But there's just that whole expectation that you must be in a relationship. And if you can't oh, be I in a relationship... Yes, I still, I'm fault. sorry to interrupt. I, I still get that. You know, my my children haven't seen their father in years. And people will tell my children are grown up. They can do whatever they want. And uh, I will still have people telling me, well, you need to have them see their father. They need to, they, everybody needs a father. And my response to that is twofold. One, they can see their father if they want to. They're adults. And two, Absolutely. why does everybody have to have a father if the father is hurting them? I don't yeah. understand that. Yes, you know, how do I, I, parental rights get the higher status and priority over individual uh, yes. care? You know, I mean, it's like saying, okay, you keep going with this friend who, uh, you know, berates you and tells you how horrible you are, and eventually you think, I'm no, I don't want to see that friend anymore. It's too hard. Why, why should you have to see that friend? Um, you know, I mean, it just it, clearly the person isn't a friend. Clearly, the the father isn't really a father, in my opinion, because um, that's not a, you know hurting people isn't under the definition of fatherhood, as far as I'm concerned. But people no, make assumptions. Yeah, yeah. The, people yeah. do make assumptions, and and I think that's even harder for a survivor, um, because survivors certainly hang in there, as I said, and try to figure out what's best and try to figure out whether this is going to hurt their kids or what's going to be best for their children. And they make that decision. Um, usually, the studies show they usually they stay for the children and they leave for the children. And then to have people, even years later, telling them, "Well, you should have done. Oh, this is harmful to your children. This is, you know, I mean, what a crock!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and don't we all do the best we can with the knowledge we have at the moment and yeah. our ability to to uh, respond and react to that. That's what I love about Maya Angelou's uh, statement that when we know better, we do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> That kind of exactly. always resonates with me because I did have a lot of self-blame and self-shame about remaining in the relationship for as long as I did. And so oh, yeah. her, her words were really helpful to me to keep saying, okay, now you know what are you going to do that's going to make you safe. Now you know, yeah. now you're seeing it, now you're aware of it, now you can adapt to it, and now you can move on. And so that's really yeah. important, I think, finding some kind of process for yourself that takes you out of what we have heard called the river river of denial. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Even though it's painful yeah. to be in that place, it still has some comfort level because it is what we're used to. And I also yeah. want to add, Heather, that while we're in the in this sort of abusive or whatever trauma has happened to someone, 
while we're in the middle of that, life still goes on, right? My teenage Absolutely. kids are still going to act out. Yep. You know, I could Absolutely. still lose my job and my income changes. Uh, I could be sick. I could become yep. sick and not mm-hmm. be able to care. You know, so it's this, it's like adding layers. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that um, your point about, you know, trying to make sense of it, I felt that way after childbirth. Childbirth was a trauma for me. And I kept, you know, afterwards I kept thinking, what what happened there? What happened there that was so, uh, you know, uh, different from what I had planned and what people had told me? Um, and it took a while to figure it out. And I kept thinking, I wish we'd videotaped it. Then I could have seen, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could have seen exactly yeah. what happened. Um, yeah, because in the middle the, of it, you're too busy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you you can't, fo- you have to focus on other things. And uh, for me, anyway, there was a, a really long process of going, you know, it's, it's like, whoa, I was hit by a truck. Who saw that coming? And, and you know, w- what did I do to get in the way of the truck? And, you know, all of these things that you have to sort out. And I think that's one of the reasons why the books that you have contributed to are so important, because it helps people figure it out. It helps to, right. uh, for them to know that they're not alone in this process. And uh, I think that's so important, so important. I do, too. Um, it's so key. So key to know you're not alone, because while you're going through it, you feel as if you're the only one on the whole planet experiencing mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, the whole... The whole validation thing and people understanding what you're going through or you seeing that other people have experienced something similar is indeed that eye-opener that you mentioned. You know, it can be the missing piece for us, if you will, if you want to use that analogy. What's missing is I don't have, I haven't paid enough attention to who I am. (laughs) I've Mm -hmm. been involved with and busy with this trauma, this change, this violence that's gone on, and I haven't really had time to pay attention to who I am. And so, I mean, I've done a lot of self-help. I don't know about you, Heather, but I didn't have a lot of money for therapists (laughs) and, you know, that kind of thing. And I actually, after leaving that relationship, I I did not engage with a nonprofit community-based program like the one that has taught me so well over the years. Um, mm-hmm. I only had one person in my corner, and that was my mother. So she she was supportive of me. She loved me as I was, which I felt at the time was very flawed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of You hoodwinked her, didn't me. you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's how we feel, you know, like, whoops, we tricked them, and if they actually find out who we are, they're not going to be supportive anymore, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I always say that if you can have just that one person, and it doesn't have to be a family member, it could be a friend, or maybe it is a therapist or a counselor or an advocate through a non, you know, through a community-based program. But, you know, if you can just have that one person that can listen to you and be non-judgmental, that's really key to getting some clarity on who you are and how you can, I call it remembering what we knew before that experience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because at some point, go ahead. I think it's important, too, because remember when we were taking that class on PTSD and there was the research that showed that if a person could tell their story soon after after the, the trauma, it helped avoid PTSD. And I think that so many of us go along thinking that we can handle this ourselves, uh, we don't have to have that outside help, or we're embarrassed. In my case, I was embarrassed. I thought, I'm going to go, you know, the police officer gave me a card for a domestic violence uh, group, and I just handed it back to him and said, I don't, I don't need this, I wasn't abused. And he was right. the one who said, if you don't think this is abuse, you don't know what abuse is. And he said, go there. Well, I, didn't, I, I couldn't go there. I kept thinking, well, I'll go to these, this meeting and tell them about my story, and they'll all laugh at me because it's not that bad. You know, these women yes. probably had some really bad stuff. Mine isn't that bad. And so I, I, I just didn't go for a long time. And finally I thought, because I didn't have family uh, to support me. I didn't have anybody. And finally I thought, if I don't 
get to somebody, if I can't share with somebody, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to go nuts. And yeah. that's when I contacted the, the um, domestic violence program, and I am so glad I did, so glad I did. Yeah. So, um, you know, and there again, I looked at books, but I never found the books that were most helpful until I went to the, the group. Yeah. They they knew books, yeah. you know. That's yeah. important. Yeah. And I think I think the most important book for me um, was uh, oh gosh no don't don't tell me I can't remember it the title of it um, it was by uh, Jenny McCarthy and um, wasn't getting free it was her first one do you remember her first one yes that's what it was called getting free I believe was that her first one I thought she had one before so. that. Yeah. Well, uh, well, anyway, that Judy McCarthy was was great. Um, yeah, I think it is getting free, and uh, it was just it was an eye opener for me to realize that I was not alone in this. And um, you know, again, the books that's what tells us you know we're not alone, and helps us figure yeah. out what this train was that hit us. Um, yeah, and I can remember. Now, I think that it's never too late. Like. Even if we're not addressing the violence or the trauma or the grief or the loss or the huge transition, even if we're not addressing that at the time, I don't think it's ever too late to finally start addressing it. And so I actually read a book when I was already uh, working for the the community-based domestic violence program, and it was written by Patricia Evans, and it was called The Verbally Abusive Relationship. Bingo. Yeah, that was another one that was oh, very after I had left the abusive marriage, but that really resonated with me because that's how my abuse uh, started in our 17-year relationship. It was definitely verbal abuse, but what happens, as you and I know now, is that turns into emotional abuse, and it escalates into physical abuse and financial abuse and isolation, and all types of control, uh, physical, sexual abuse, all those things kind of seem to grow out of that initial stage of verbal abuse. And so it was really important for me to read those words of hers and think, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I think we're... we're we we i think as a culture we kind of get the idea that beating up on somebody is abuse we get that idea yeah, but we do. if your abuse isn't physical people tend to, are minimizing it you know they, it's yeah. like they don't get how devastating that emotional yeah. abuse can be um well, and and, and that's the same social and cultural cues that say it's you shouldn't stay in that. You know, you should recognize that right away and you should leave. Mm-hmm. You should sever that relationship. You should end it. And that puts mm-hmm. so much responsibility on the person that had that experience. That isn't, it really isn't appropriate. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. Um, especially when that person is probably, probably dealing with children and uh, trying to figure out what's best for their kids and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It it just adds one more burden. And then she has to decide, you know, is it better for my kids to leave or is it better for them to have a father in their lives or, you know, uh, or, you know, if I leave, then what? You know, what's go- what's he going to do? What's, what's going to happen to me? Um, so, yeah, it, yeah, it's adding that burden um, but we've done that as a culture. I mean, we have said uh, for centuries that the success of a relationship depends on the woman. So if it fails, clearly it's it's the woman's fault, right? Yes. And the purpose of the first anthology that you edited and published and brought together, Heather, why doesn't she just leave, was to show the myriad of reasons why people don't leave, as well as to recognize that we do leave, but sometimes we have to go back. Yep. Right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> you know, when people people ask me that question, I go, well, I, they do leave. It might not be according to your schedule, um, yeah. but <laughs> they do leave, you know. Um, Absolutely. Uh, because, you know, the studies do show that women do get out of this, but the studies also show that they might not live 
yeah. when they try to get and out of it. The, that's the really dark and scary side of it that society and culture does not want to speak about is that they should just leave and that will end it. And you and I know from personal levels and academic and professional levels that that is not the case, right? We've talked about separation violence, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's a whole, I mean, you know, that's a whole other game all in itself, you know, trying to live through separating. Um, yeah. And I, I always say, read the paper. You know, I mean, usually buried somewhere when uh, someone has killed their family or or their spouse, uh, you usually find um, she got a protection order that day, or she's been talking about divorcing okay. him, and you know, mm-hmm. and it just yes. boom, you know, because if you're talking about control, which is what abusers do, they control, and that's more important to them than anything else. If they Absolutely. see sense that they're losing control, you are threatening them. You are threatening mm-hmm. to take away the thing that makes them tick, which is controlling you. Yeah. And they don't they don't take lightly to that. <laughs> no, they don't. They uh that increases someone's danger of being seriously injured or b- becoming killed, murdered, raped. Um it's like 75% increase when someone does actually take steps to make themselves safe, which is what society and culture tells us we need to do. You need to leave. You need to provide your own safety in that way. And so when and if we do take that step, it becomes very dangerous for us, not only emotionally but physically. And that is something that no one wants to talk about. I wrote an essay, one of my early on essays in my academic career was you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't (laughs) and maybe you're even dead if you don't so um it's all about whose responsibility is it and we like to put the blame and the responsibility on the the victim of the crime of violence or the the victim that has experienced it well because if we can make it her fault then easy squeezy. We, we, if it's something she did or something she didn't, well, that, you know, then great because we'll we'll do it or not or not do it, you know, differently from her. So we're safe. Right. We're safe. And don't they know if there's shelters? <laughs> yep. Yeah. And and what one of the dangers about that is is that you know if we feel that it's her fault and we will be different from her. Then it takes that whole randomness, that whole um, anybody can be abused, anybody can, you know, be with an abuser. It takes that out of the picture, see, and then right. we're safe also. We're safe. Yeah. Um, so I used to get really mad at people who would say things like, you know, well, didn't you, come on, didn't you see something, didn't he give you hints, didn't he, you know. No, you don't go out on a first date and the guy beats the hell out of you and you go, yippee, skippy, let me marry him. Um, no. It, it's, it's, a, it's a process. And um, it gets me frustrated when people think somehow or other um, we should have known better. Yeah, and we chose. We chose to live with the abuse or the violence that's been done to us. Yeah, you, know, well, you made your bed, you lie on it. Absolutely, and one of the things that uh, I actually, my, my chapter in, your, in the anthology, Why Doesn't She Just Leave, was about the financial Mm-hmm. Um, violence and abuse that happens and that is key and it wasn't for me I did leave and come back multiple times and I liken it to an exercise because I was strengthening my muscle my my courage to to actually leave and stay away but every time I went back it was because of economic reasons I had four children if I had to work at a minimum wage job, I can't afford daycare. I can't afford housing, you know. So every mm-hmm. time I left and came back, I got a little bit smarter about getting my resources together and my ability to be self-supporting with enough uh, resources to care for my kids. So. It was definitely, uh, and most, I think, survivors would say that financial reasons are very key in the reasons why we stay. We have a caller, Deborah. Let's go to, okay. hello, what is your first name? Hi. 
Oh, hi. This is Ebony. I hadn't put my hand up. Ebony? But, um, okay. Hi, Ebony. Welcome. You have uh, something to contribute to our, our program today? I can do. Um, although I wasn't planning to. Um, I was just listening at the beginning. But um, I, I, I did hear your um, speaker say that, you know, the reason why women stay is for financial reasons. Um, well, that's one and, of the reasons, yeah. One of the reasons, yeah. And I totally get that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I stayed um, in an in a abusive relationship. But I think when I planned to get out, that was one of the things that I really worked on straight away. I knew I wanted to leave. And, you know, it, it was that leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back. And in, in order to um, actually stay away and be fine, I knew that I had to secure my finances. So I spent a whole year planning out how I would... Um, and not just planning, but actively um, working towards financially being secure enough to to move away from that unit. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it meant doing more than one job. In one time, it was three jobs, and it hasn't changed, uh, you know, in the 10 years since I've Mm -hmm. left, because it still is very expensive for women to be on their own, particularly if you've got children. And I had, uh, you know, three kids that were approaching university stage um, and one's complete but two are still going through that stage right now but you know it 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 is a hard decision I and I get that women can give themselves lots of reasons but I think um, in hindsight now I'm away from it it's been like 10 years this year um, my kids are much more well adjusted they've all done what they needed to do and pretty much doing very well I feel like um, i I don't know if it was the right thing to stay as long as I did. But at the time, it just felt like the right thing to do because I didn't want to put my my kids in a situation where they would be struggling. Because um, it's one mm. thing being moved away from a partner and not having, you know, the whole apple cart being messed up because we haven't got the same ways of um, of uh, communicating and, and, and behaving in a relationship that just doesn't include you includes also the, that partner um you know so i just wanted to make it as comfortable as possible but i think sometimes there's no ideal and i think if i did it again i would have probably left sooner and i wouldn't have given myself that reason because at the end of the day it was hard it was always going to be hard there was nothing that really was going to change on that but i think you know sometimes it can make you stay longer than you you kind of need to it's a bit like having a child there's never really a perfect time <laughs> exactly <laughs> absolutely right yeah i think that you know time. that that kind of second guessing yourself is to should i have left earlier should i have not left earlier you know i mean i think we all kind of go through that and yeah. Sometimes we go through it later because we don't realize how absolutely terrifying it was at the time. Yeah. And I always say that women do leave. They leave when the fear of the unknown of what's out there is greater than the fear of staying where you are. Mhm. That that's true. And so you notice either either choice, fear. Fear. Yeah. Um and, and so, you know, that that fear that we have, we don't have that 10 years down the road, not to the same extent anyway. Um, so mm-hmm. it's easier for us to say, oh, yeah, well, I should have done that earlier. But we forget about all that fear and, and um, uh, lack of confidence and lack of, um, you know, all of these things that we were experiencing at the time. So, Ebony, I think that, you know, stop second-guessing yourself. You did wonderfully. You did wonderfully, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Well, and yeah. thanks for, oh. uh, you know, sharing your story, Ebony, no because what what I've discovered is you never actually um, forget that experience that you've been through, and it kind of sticks with us and kind of directs our life in a different way. It impacts us. It changes who mm-hmm. we are, but it also is a, a, an ongoing process for all of us once we've become safe or made the decision or whatever it is that we need to do to make to to leave the violence or the trauma or the loss of what we had and I think being in a violent relationship includes mm-hmm. all of that because I did grieve what I was giving up and I did have loss you know because not only material loss but familial loss you know connection and ties to people in his on his side of the family that were not abusive to me, 
<laughs> so there's yeah. all kinds of things that we still have to work through after we do, quote, unquote, become safe or um, make that decision. So thank yeah. you very yeah. much for sharing your story, Ebony. No problem. Thank you no for problem. calling in. Bye. No problem. Um, <laughs> um, Ebony's story is, uh, I think, uh, unique in that she took so long to plan getting out. Is that your experience, Deborah? Well, like I said, I left several times. I think the statistic I read when I was in school was that someone may leave seven to nine times before it becomes a permanent situation. So I did that. I, I left and came back and left and came back. But when it came down but to you know, Deborah, that decision, yeah, yeah, yeah I it always. You know, when when people talk about how many times she goes back, how many times she goes back, I always say, you know, studies show it takes seven attempts to quit smoking. Yeah. If it takes that many attempts to quit smoking, what? How many attempts does it take to quit your yeah. life? Yeah, I was, and I agree with that. So I was just going to say that when it came down to the actual final decision to to make that separation at the time I did, it didn't matter because at that point I was not working. We lived in a house where we had a $1,000 a month payment, and this was 20 years ago, I want to tell you. So that was a high house payment. Plus, I had four children, and we only had one car. So he, I made the decision to leave when I knew the impact it was having on my kids. I wasn't brave enough, smart enough, courageous enough, or however you are knowledgeable enough to do it just for my own sake. When I could make the connection to the impact it was having on my four kids, I said, "That's it. I'm their, yeah. I'm their mother. I brought them onto the world, so it's my responsibility to do what I can to make sure they're safe and happy, and that means emotionally as well as physically." And so, when I made the decision to leave, it didn't matter that I had all those negatives, uh, you know, against that decision. I just made the decision, and so. Uh, it was pretty tough uh, that, net, like Ebony said, for the net, you know, working, well, you do whatever you have to do to put food on the table and keep the roof over your head. So I Absolutely. certainly, yeah, made the decision in uh, without without having a plan, you know, yeah. having a solid financial plan ahead of me, but. Um, yeah, it was just I couldn't. I, I, at that point, when I became aware and knew what I had experienced and what my kids were experiencing, that was it. It yeah. was kind of like yeah. that do or die moment. <laughs> yeah, you, like the research shows: you stay for your kids, you leave for your kids. Um, I think that that's a very typical situation, and that brings us full circle back to the books. Um, yes. Without a lot of these books, I mean. I, I would still be ignorant about what I actually went through. Um, these books are so helpful in helping you define what it is that's wrong in this relationship. It help, they help you define the best way to get out of the relationship. They help you find resources. And most importantly, they help you realize you're not alone. So, yes. you know, uh, I'll, go ahead, Deborah. Well, and so that also brings into my, my third anthology, what was uh, released in, in March of 2014, uh, the second book in the Missing Piece series. It's called The Missing Piece in Business. And uh, that was interesting for me because I've kind of dabbled in a personal business for the last 20 years. And so I call it self-empowerment strategies. And it is... The strategies over the last 20 years that I've learned from working with those thousands of self-identified survivors of grief, loss, trauma, and violence that help move me forward, self-empowerment strategies, because ultimately it's up to me to, to make my own decisions and to take responsibility for my actions and behaviors. And so... When offered the opportunity to participate in the missing piece in business, I thought that's interesting, and I, I'm, I'm going to look at it from a business point of view. But my chapter is called Synchronicity in Business, and it's very much related to self-empowerment strategies. But 
it's recognizing, you know, there's a door in front of you, knock on it. Opportunity, open that door. And when you do that, things, good things happen for you. And I also was able to reconcile for myself that I thought business was separate from my personal life and my family life. And while there is some, you know, separation, my business is really about who I am as a human being. And I think so many of us identify ourselves by the work and the outcome of our work. And so business for me became more than just a separate action or sphere in my life. Uh, it's kind of like the personal is political. You, know, you remember uh, in the yes. 70s when women's liberation activists are saying the personal is political. It's also part of business is also personal. And especially when you're doing work that you have a passion for and that you truly love and you do it because you can do it. And so yeah. that's that's where my uh, synchronicity came in. And actually, the principle of synchronicity has played heavily in my life since leaving and getting away from that abusive relationship, being ready and open for the things that are, are happening for you. And they're right in front of you if you can see them. <laughs> yeah. And that's tougher than it sounds. You know, again, I I, I don't think that um, it's unusual. You know, that level of fear that you operate under when you're leaving is very intense, but you also carry some of that fear with you for the rest of your life. And, you know, you can can, uh, beat it back, uh, but it involves beating it back. You know, uh, it doesn't just go away. And so taking new opportunities is a lot harder, or opening yourself to new opportunities is a lot harder when you're operating from a, a place of fear. Yes. And, uh, you know, we often say that the past predicts the future. And so if you're looking at your past, you're thinking, oh, I made a lot of bad decisions. Maybe. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Or I made bad choices or I used bad behaviors. So how can I change myself to be open and, and, and uh, receive the good things that are out there for me. So it's really, it is really, and for me it's a lifelong, ongoing, <laughs> I call myself yeah. a work of yeah. art in progress, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, and, and again, you know, coming back to these books, I mean, that's what makes these books so useful. Um, I was lucky enough to find a, a place that I could talk to. It took me a while to get there, but I was lucky enough to, to find a, a, a group and a domestic violence uh, group situation where I could speak and kind of figure things out, Um, not just what the truck was that hit me, but also, you know, where I can go for help, where I could take my kids for help if I don't have any money. You know, I mean, it was was just invaluable. Um, Yeah. But it... Yeah, and and, uh, the books, without the books, I just would have been lost. And I think that's why... um, Deborah and I met in in school. We were, um, for the most part, I mean, we'd met each other before, but we really didn't know each other that well until we were in school together. And uh, the program that we went went to was on domestic violence, specifically on domestic violence at the University of Colorado in Denver. And um, that, you know, that that curiosity, that the 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 urge to learn more, um, is what brought me to that program. And um, I, I. appreciated it mightily and uh, I met some pretty good people there including Deborah so <laughs> yeah well we had actually was... met in a, another type of support system remember survivors in service oh yeah that's right that's right so we've known each other longer than uh, than that because that was in 2006 2008 right oh so, I think it was even before wasn't it no, yeah, I was saying the program on domestic violence. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, the program, yeah, yeah. Was so, in 2006. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, so yes, we had known each other in a different capacity in this group that was really, it, that group was really key for me. That was my support group or the group yeah. that you're mentioning yeah. where you could actually talk about your experience and not be judged. Mm-hmm. That survivor's yeah. service was up for me, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, really exactly. important to have a support system, whatever that looks like for each of us. 
Mm-hmm. And I it's think- crucial. And if if you don't have family, I, I think it's absolutely crucial that you go find uh, other support systems. Yes, and I think that you can also support yourself though through books and mm-hmm. reading books such as the anthology. Why does she just? Why doesn't she just leave? Or the missing piece, the transformational journey, where you're hearing from people who've kind of been there, done that, and have walked to the other side, I think is really uh, illuminating and inspiring, and I hope it is anyway. And that's really the purpose of my work and my reasons for writing is, yes, it helps me to write it down and process it and and go through that and kind of analyze it. But it also really um, motivates me to think that it could be of use to anyone else, to someone else, you know, and whether they, if they can pick that up through reading a story, uh, a chapter in an anthology, then then that's good. That's that's positive. That's good enough for me. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting. I think in the number of survivors I've met over the years, almost without exception, they want to do something to help the next woman. Yes. They really want to try and help whatever way they can. Um, yes. And if that way is like donating to a shelter or if that way is talking with somebody, um, uh, survivors uh, as a whole, I think, want to help the next woman. Um, yeah. And that's at We don't want someone else to have to go through it. I definitely didn't want my, uh, my children experienced it, but the next generation, my grandkids, and I have eight grandkids now, so I definitely want things to change for the better so they don't have to have relationships like that. Or if you know, they happen to have a relationship like that, they know what to do. They, they know, know what, what to do. do. I always, Absolutely. I, I always said I, can't, I couldn't show my children a good marriage, but I could show them how to get out of one that wasn't. Yeah. And that's yeah. the most that I could do for them. Um, yeah, and, and real-life skills are important. They're not really focused on in, in the... K through 12 system here in the United States, they're starting to do some more of that. But mm-hmm. you know that the real the real life skills are important. And if we can't get it at home, then the schools should be offering some of that too. Besides the the math and the reading mm-hmm. and the writing, mm-hmm. there should be. Um, do you know how to fill out a resume? <laughs> Yes, exactly, exactly. Do you know what a um, bank is and how it can help you, you know, and how you can yes. pay your bills? Do you realize you're going to have bills for the rest of your life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the uh, in England they have the gap year, you know, where kids are supposed to go find themselves before they start college. I think we yeah. need a gap year simply in life skills. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Because it, it is a shock <laughs> to a lot of a lot of kids, you know, what real life can be. But I guess it's always yeah. been. I don't know. Well, yeah, and again, and like I, you say, we can't pre- we can't prevent our children from making their own decisions, and they're going to make or not make their own uh, mistakes, right? Some people exactly. can learn totally from the experience the voice of others, but some have to experience it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes and I think in, the the case, <laughs> in the case of domestic violence, um, you know, it, it can, they don't have to make the decision to go with it. I mean, they could find themselves in that situation, you know, without realizing that they had yeah. just made a decision to get with a guy who's, you know, a bad guy or woman. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, so recognizing um, verbal abuse and emotional abuse uh-huh. and control, what does that mm-hmm. look like? And do I have to be in a relationship with those kinds of characteristics? Absolutely not. And, you know, yeah. do we or teach should I get out before kids? I have kids? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Teaching our well, Deborah, young. I just that, that. Go ahead. No, I was just well, going to say teaching our young is really key. <laughs> it is. I just, I, as long as we're talking books here, I wanted to share a book that I just got done reading. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's by Michelle Kaminsky, uh, with a K, K, Kaminsky, and it's called Reflections of a Domestic Violence Prosecutor. And it's, it's really very interesting because not only does this woman use real uh, cases, like we've been talking about in some of our books, um, to illustrate her points, she also makes suggestions on how the family court system 
can change and serve domestic violence uh, victims better. And although I've seen a number of uh, criticisms of the of the court system, family court system, which is just ugh, it's just rife with with injustice. Um, this is the first book that I've read that actually offers solutions, you know, fairly nice. doable Great. solutions. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this book. Have you read this one? No, but I will. I will. Okay, too. it's That's a slim volume. Like a it's an evening. Uh, it's an evening read. Uh, Reflections of a Domestic mm-hmm. Violence Prosecutor by Michelle Kaminsky. Mm-hmm. So, if you're okay. going through the court nightmare, this might be useful for you, at least to let you yeah. know that you're not alone fighting that that whole system. What other books yeah. have been really influential for you, Deborah? Can well, you think of any? I, yeah, I did a lot of self-help reading, and some of the ones that were really impactful for me are uh, Julia Cameron. Uh, she wrote the, um, the, creative, uh, the Creative Way. What is it called? Oh, it's on my bookshelf here, but I also read um, SARC, which is S-A-R-K, and that's an acronym. Um, I read an author called Ianla Van Zant. She has a whole Ooh. series of uh, books that are fabulous about accepting what's happened to you and taking responsibility for yourself. And I also read the, the uh, Simple Abundance series by a woman called Sarah Bon Brainock, which were very helpful. Louise Hay, her um, You Can Heal Your Life stuff was phenomenal for me. <laughs> I have almost all of her books. I'm kind of, I find someone and I read all their work. And um, yes. It really helps me to stick in their kind of their theories and their practices and their strategies that they use and offer are very helpful to me. And I like getting different perspectives on that, and that's why I offer these different Louise Hay, Sarah Bond-Brainock, Ianla Van Zant, Julia Cameron. I also read uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, The Four Agreements, and he's now got the fifth agreement out. Very impactful. Yeah. Very good well, the, uh, stuff. It's not focusing on violence so much, but on who you are as an individual and what gifts you have to offer the world. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I read um, Susan Weitzman, W-E-I-T-Z-M-A-N, Not to People Like Us. And it really focuses in on um, domestic violence in the upper economic echelons. Um, which I right. find, you know, people don't really talk about too much. I think that um, for most of us going through, you know, some of what we went through, we kept thinking if we had money, you know, this wouldn't be so hard. You know, if we could hire yes. fancy lawyers, if we could, you know, <clears throat> take care of housing and all that kind of stuff. So you tend to think that, you know, women who come from uh, wealth don't have it as bad, which is always a dangerous thing when you compare who has it worst, you know. Yeah, but you don't want to go down that road. road. No, no. Well, With this yeah, book, not, not, not to people like us, she points out exactly how difficult this situation is for women who are in wealthy marriages. And I think one of the most important points she, she makes is just because he's rich doesn't mean she is. Yeah, exactly. You know? and, and, yeah, and that was really helpful for me. And another one, actually, you recommended to me called Keeping the Faith, Guidance for Christian yes. Women Facing Abuse. I'm not particularly religious, but I've encountered several people who have really um, been ill-advised by their clergy as far as safety. If you consider safety, um, they've been ill-advised. And so I kind of decided, you know, we should work more with clergy because no matter what you believe, you know, say you don't believe in divorce for your religion, that's okay. You can still help a woman get safe. It doesn't mean she has to file for divorce. She could file for a legal separation. She could just move away. She could, you know. I mean, there are ways to protect women that are in keeping with your faith. Um, And I think that clergy people need to be aware of that, you know, how they can, uh, you know, focus on safety without compromising their uh, beliefs. So that one has been... Well, I think it's uh, important for the faith community to not have their heads in the sand and say it doesn't happen in my my religious community because it does right we know that it does 
mm-hmm. <laughs> and they catch and, it and, fact, and be prepared for it. Exactly. And the study, I read a recent study that said, I'm big on the studies. Uh, I read a recent study that showed that uh, something like 74% of women went to their clergy person um, mm-hmm. first to talk about domestic yeah. violence. So a lot of women rely on the clergy. And, um, you know, I, I, my own little personal thing is I think we need to, to uh, get in there and educate cl- the clergy of, of how they can help a woman seek safety and get out of an abusive situation and still keep their, their religious beliefs intact. So well, that and one. I think it's important to have other avenues of resources and support beyond the criminal justice system because that isn't for everybody. Yes, exactly. And the faith um, community isn't for everybody, so we have to continually uh, expand the knowledge of practitioners and supportive people in all arenas of life. It has to be all across the board. Employers have to be aware. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. So, um, Personnel, teachers, everybody. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, in talking with um, about books, we didn't mention Evan Stark. He has a couple of um, uh, useful books out there. Yeah. And oh, I just dropped my keys. And uh, we also, um, uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, um, this one is useful too, uh, to a marginal degree. It's by Stephen Farmer, and it's called "Adult Children of Abusive Parents." And it's mostly about child abuse. But when I read it, I mm-hmm. thought, you know, a lot of this ring bell, rings bells for me because my yeah. my parents were. Uh, in a, an abusive relationship, too. Um, right. I also and, always recommend uh, Lundy Bancroft for anybody who wants oh, to yeah. read. He's done several good books, most uh, well-known for why does, he, why does he do that. So he talks why perpetrators will use abusive tactics, and it's very – and he also talks about uh, abusive men as fathers which nobody wants to talk about, right? So that's that's really helpful reading, too. Yeah, yeah. And I've also started reading a lot about men, pro-feminist men. We had Rob Oaken on a couple of weeks ago, and he just came out with a new anthology, a new collection of essays by men who are prominent uh, in their support of uh, feminism and in their um, fight against domestic violence. And I was just stunned by some of the essays in there. He has Jackson Katz. He has I mean, just all sorts of people. Uh, and their essays are in that book. And it's very comprehensive. So that's by Rob Oaken, and it's called Voice Male, M-A-L-E. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of neat for me. I mean, I grew up in a very female household, and I, you know, I, I continue to be kind of... Uh, I don't know, naive, when I guess, when it comes to men. So it's good for me to read those kinds of books about men. Uh, the Macho Paradox by Jackson Katz. Um, mm-hmm. it's very good. I just got one by Burns that I have not read, so I don't know whether I'm recommending it or not, but I like the title, Framing the Victim. Mm-hmm. So lots of things out there, including yeah. Why Doesn't She Just Leave and Absolutely. Deborah. Yeah, and my... And, uh, the missing piece, you can go to my website, which is Deborah K. Adams, the missing piece.com. You can purchase them directly from me if you like, or you can get it from Amazon. Yep, good old Amazon. Um, yeah, thank God. <laughs> yep. We always like to end the show with a quote, and Deborah actually started that. And, um, and my quote just went away, Deborah. Um, let me see if I can go back. No, I can't. There was a quote that I found that had that said that basically uh, reading a book adds to your knowledge base and doesn't take anything away except adding. So I think that's that's very true. You know, no matter what your situation, even if you're not in a domestic violence situation, read the books, learn about domestic violence. You know, chances yeah. are one out of every four of your friends has experienced it or is experiencing it. So even if it doesn't touch your life directly, in, to your knowledge, it may be out there and it may affect you. Got any last five-second words for us, Deborah? No, just take care of yourself. Remember who you are and uh, live uh, free of violence with joy and out loud. 
Sounds great. I can't add anything to that. Thank you, Deborah, for being with us. <laughs> and welcome. thank you, listeners. Join us next week. <laughs>